Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Scottish Clans Podcast. I'm Clint Edwards, and once again, I will be your host in this episode, number 37, The Rescue of Kinmont Willie Armstrong. So, I've been on a streak for a while of more academic-type podcasts. <clears throat> the last one we focused on Clan Donaghy, or the Robertsons of Struan, and it was just kind of a clan highlight, really. That's uh, they're a clan that I think I'm. I've always been interested in. We didn't go real deep into it last time. We just kind of give you an introductory. Here they are. Today, though, is more of a storytelling one, and and I'm excited to tell this because this is one of the, this is one of the better stories I think in Scottish history. Now, on the one hand, it the actual events of it are fairly unremarkable, but on the other hand, it's. It, it is the stuff of movies and best-selling novels, and I don't know, maybe maybe it's just a matter of time, or maybe somebody already has written about this this story that we're going to cover today in a in, and put it into a novel form, although I don't know about it, but I don't know about every single book that's ever been written out there. Now, one book that I do know that's been written about, or that has been written on this subject, the subject of the, the border the Anglo-Scottish border in general, is, and I've mentioned this book before, it's by George MacDonald Fraser, and is a book called The Steel Bonnets. Now, in most of the, it's not a primary source, but the, much of the, the things that I have read on the border reavers, as they cite their sources, this, this work by Fraser is always, I mean, it's it's ubiquitous. It's always mentioned in the references. This is this is a landmark work. Now, it's interesting because Fraser. I did a little looking up on him, and he was not an academic. He was a he was a writer. He not only wrote nonfiction, which th- this is. He also has written novels. He's written screenplays, and maybe that's why this book is so enjoyable to read. Now, I, I'm not done reading this. In fact, I've already read only read a small portion of it. However, Fraser just has a way with words, and he seems to have taken an academic approach, although he, like I said, he's not a scholar himself, at least not in the formal sense, where he's got degrees after his name and has lectured or researched or taught at different universities, but he, he does cite sources, he does... He, he's, I, I like the way he comes at this, it, it, the way he writes this gives me confidence as an as a person who studies history, but he also, I don't know, he seems to mesh the best of both worlds together. He also tells the story in a way that's very easy and enjoyable to read. I really recommend this book. It's an old book. I'm not getting any money to recommend it. It's You can probably find it for pretty cheap on Amazon. In fact, I think, I think I've got it loaded into my inbox right now. And the one, the copy of it that I've, not my inbox, my, uh, I don't know, whatever you call it on Amazon where you save it. You're going you're gonna to buy it sometime in the near future. I just haven't pulled the trigger yet. I've got a copy from a library, and that's what I've been using. But I want to own this book, and I, th- I think the copy that I put on Amazon to buy soon is about $17. So I recommend it, but I'm not getting any money for doing so. Anyway, that's where I'm taking the story from. You can find, you can go to 
different just regular web pages but they're, they're not going to give you the depth that Fraser gives you in this book neither am I if you want to get the real because it's pages and pages long there's just one story in here so if you want to get the real into the weeds version of this story then I recommend going to this and by by the way I was not able to find online any version of the story that's as detailed as what Fraser tells so without any further ado let's get into this story let's give you some background some cultural background first and then we're going to go into the actual events that are pretty exciting to talk about all right so cultural background it's interesting because we have this anglo-scottish border which is a very political line it went back and forth over the centuries and i think i can't remember if it was under malcolm canmore malcolm the third king of scotland that it actually solidified in its current line in in ages prior to this the the British kingdom of Strathclyde, when I say British, I don't mean that term the way it's used today. I mean pertaining to the ancient Britons who spoke a language up in this part of Scotland that would have been r r closely related to the old Welsh. These Britons, they, so they have the similar language with the people who are living in what's today Wales. And if you look back in the old legends, like in the Mabinogion um, I think I pronounced that right. I don't, I don't know how close I was. Anyway, the the people in Wales looked at the people of the Old North, the Hen Oglith, as close kinsmen. They're, they they definitely saw... A, it wasn't just some other people on this island that happened to speak a similar language to us. There was a perceived connection between the people in what is now Wales and the Old Kingdom of Strathclyde, which is rested mostly in West Scotland. However... The Kingdom of Strathclyde did push down into the area known as Cumberland, formerly Cumbria, which is in northwest England. So, if you go way back into the time of this kingdom, you'll have a British-speaking population that predates the, Anglo the current Anglo-Scottish border. And so, I guess what I'm saying, at least in the West Marches, the... the I've, I, I mentioned this in my introduction to the Scottish borders in a previous episode. You can look back through and find the title for that one. I go into kind of the, I talk about the borders in general. I just think it's interesting that the people on both sides of this Anglo-Scottish border, they really do have, the, the border doesn't make any kind of a cultural break there. In the Western, if you, rather than develop the marches or the Scottish border, they call it the marches, into three, the West, Middle, and East March, and both sides, the English and the Scottish, had their own West, Middle, and East March, and each, each March had their own warden who was responsible for what was going on in that part. The, in the East, that was the, the kingdom of Northumbria. Now, before the Angles, but you had to go way back for, before the Angles, then it would have been also a British-speaking area, but it, you get into the Anglo-Saxon time pre-Norman conquest in 1066, then this probably would have been an Old English-speaking area in the East Marches. In the West, though, it probably would have been Cumbric or some, some form of something that we would re recognize as old, similar to Old Welsh. Now, I don't know when exactly the people in this area adopted English as their language. I'm just t telling you, both people on the English side and the Scottish side of the West March, which is where our story takes place, they, they both come out of that old kingdom of Strathclyde. Anyway, so, so you have people on both sides, and, and I'll tell you 
that to the Klansmen. Now, just being trying to be more accurate, Klan is a is a Gallic term that would have been used more in the Highlands at this time. In addition to other Gallic terms denoting kindred. Down here, they were during the time period that this would be that we're talking about now, which is the late 1500s. The term surname would have been used more commonly than you would ever ever heard the word clan. But these these people of these different surnames or clans, whether they were on English or Scottish side, the, the, the England and the Scotland thing was a matter of expediency to them, meaning that they were whatever it was convenient to be at the time. They would they would change and say, no, we're English subjects, no, we're Scottish subjects, just depending on which would give them the best advantage at that moment. Because the because the who controlled that bounced back and forth with raid and counter raid, both on a small local level and on a national level. So we have these these clans spread out along the border. They they intermarry with each other despite laws prohibiting them from doing so. So just like in the Highlands, the loyalty to the surname or the clan was much more important than local uh, loyalty to the the nation. Another thing that I found was interesting as I was doing this research was that the 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 way that the society was broken down, the kin-based nature of it. In Scotland, the, kin, the kin-based society was a much bigger deal than it was in England. It, it was, now England, they, had, they were families, and yes, there was, yeah, I'm connected with these guys over here and stuff, but they did not run their lives based on that connection to the degree that the Scots did. And that is something, after all the research I've done, I'm very confident in saying. However... An exception in England may be found along the border. If, as, according to what I'm reading here, especially in the steel bonnets and the picture that Fraser paints, the people on the English side of the Anglo-Scottish border, they were or, organized very similarly into kin-based groups, these surnames. So I think that's fascinating that this kin-based culture extended on both sides of this of this border despite the kin-based culture being much more prevalent in Scotland. All right, so there's a little historical background. Now, I think that the time of the border reavers, as we as we know them, it may it may go back clear back to the I don't know the the late twelve early thirteen hundreds, but it reaches this what we think of when we think of border reavers reaches a crescendo in the fifteen hundreds. And, and it, it seems to even within the 1500s crescendo in the late 1500s, which is ironic because it's like it hit this high point and then boom, drops off. What, why does it drop off? Well, something that had a lot to do with this was the fact that James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England as well. It's not a united kingdom yet. That would technically be in the future. But he looks at himself as ruling like it's it's all his his land and he doesn't like that there's this stuff going on along this border here so he takes aggressive policy measures to stamp out this this reaving lawless area along this border as as he does in the highlands as well he really seeks to establish some semblance of what he would look like as order and civilization 
Okay, now... Well, I think that's all I'm going to talk about, the cultural background of the border reavers. If you want more on that, you'll have to go back to the previous, that the introduction to the border border reavers that I did earlier. It's one of the earlier, I can't remember what uh, episode number it is, so I'm going to have to just re- refer you back to that, that earlier episode. All right, so the Armstrongs, Kinmont Willie Armstrong. He wasn't, as far as I can tell, the actual chief of all the Armstrongs, but he would have been a... I don't know if you'd call him a minor. He, if he was in the Highlands, he'd be part of the Dania Wessel. He was close kin to the chief. The Armstrongs were a kin group that were right down there on the border. Now, there was a lot of border clans that, they were border clans, but their territory didn't sit right on the border. They were like the Johnstons up in, up in uh, was it Lockwood? Tower. Anyway, their 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 center of gravity was north of the border. Although they were a very culturally, they were very much a border clan. They were they were involved in a ferocious feud with the Maxwells, which I also did an episode on that earlier. And they were very much into this whole reaving and riding and raiding and uh, not only neighboring clans in Scotland, but pushing across the border. But their their territory, unlike the Armstrongs, was not sitting right on the border. The Armstrongs was right on the border. And now, what one thing that would happen in the land of the border reavers was that they would have these days called truce days. And it was where, and it was usually done, done along the organization of the marches. So the Scottish West March and the English West March, each with their own respective warden, would call a truce day. They would meet together. They would hash stuff out. Hey, your guy stole from my guy. Let's settle it. Anything, any other disputes or irregularities that needed, issues that needed to be handled would be handled on this day. And on a truce day, the reason they call it a truce is because, hey, look, we need to, we need to be able to accomplish some business without worrying about getting shot, stabbed, whatever. So so we're going to conduct business, and it doesn't matter what you're wanted for, it's a safe day. And that is why William Armstrong of Morton, who was his, he was the keeper of Sark Tower, that was his stronghold, that's why he appeared, because he was a known reaver. But it was safe to show up on the truce day to this thing, which he does. Okay, so what ends up happening, and, and it's really unclear, and Fraser tries to piece this together using contemporary first-hand correspondence. So the keeper, I think the Scottish West March was in between keepers at this time. The keep, the ward, or I mean not the keeper, the, the warden, the West March warden for Scotland, was that, that position was vacant. And uh, there was a deputy warden, and he was present on the truce day. The English West March warden was a guy named Lord Thomas Scrope. And his deputy, who was representing him on, at this truce day, was a gentleman by the name of Salkeld. So neither, neither side had a warden there, but both sides had a deputy. Now... I don't, and so we're so Fraser's taking his information from first like Scrope is writing, Salkeld's writing, other other firsthand contemporary writings, and we're lucky at this time period to have some more of that than we've had at other time periods. We but we still don't know why Kinmont Willie was taken captive by the English. 
In doing so, they transgressed the inviolate truce day custom that people are safe. Kinmont Willie was there on account of, he was, I think he was acting as a witness for something else that was going on there, and he should have been safe. Now, Frazier posits certain speculation about how this capture actually took place, why it took place. Could it be that Kinmont Willie was flaunting his immunity and people who may have been on the receiving ends of his border reaver activity said, you know what, I don't care about truce days. That's enough of that. And the English captured him. Well, I don't know if that's how it really happened, but what really happened was the English captured him and violated the truce day. And we, and we just, Frazier speculates that maybe he was, maybe tempers flared and he was rubbing their nose. And I don't know. That's his speculation. One way or the other, Frazier ends up in Carlisle Castle. Carlisle, for those of you not familiar with English-Scottish landscape, Carlisle is south of the border in, no, in very northwest England. Carlisle Castle was no joke. It was not the Disneyland-looking castle. It was not made for comfort. It was made for strength. And if you look at a picture of it, you can tell that. So that's where Kinmont Willie finds himself, is being kept as an English prisoner in Carlisle Castle. Now, the problem with this, aside from the fact that certain rules were violated in taking him prisoner, was that it was done, so the Armstrongs, their ter territory in, the, in the, this very western part of the border, was Liddesdale. So that's, I hope I'm holding Lidsdale, Liddesdale. I always just say Liddesdale. Anyway, that's where the Armstrong uh, territory was. That was part of a bigger area that was controlled by Walter Scott of Buccleuch. I think I'm saying that right, but I'm not sure. B-U-C-C-L-E-U-C-H. Walter Scott of Buccleuch. Now, Walter, so, so the fact that Kinmont Willie Armstrong was taken and in violation of the law on his property meant that he had certain feelings about it. Now, in all the reading I did on this, I never saw that previous to this, Walter Scott and Kinmont Willie had any strong personal connection. I don't know that they did. Maybe, maybe not. But Walter Scott is taking this as a personal affront to his stewardship that he was captured and taken on his area that he had he was responsible for. Okay, so this is interesting because Walter Scott does not just go guns ablazing into this, which you would kind of expect from a person, another person in addition to Kinmont Willie. Walter Scott was a a known border reaver. The Scots were very active in this border reaving activity, and I think today the I think the chief of the Scots is the largest landholder in all of Scotland right now. I think it's something like 128,000 acres that he owns in Scotland. It's a lot. Anyway, so they, they acted, the Scots acted on a, on a more national scale historically, but they were very much a border reaver clan. And so Walter Scott of Buccleuch, he doesn't, he, despite his experience in warfare, does not just go in guns a-blazing. He tries to handle this situation in every correct way possible. First, he tries with the deputy, who is the guy in charge on the ground at the truce day when this capture took place. Now, this does not mean that Saul Kelda was actually there. 
there is there it was the truce day was a truce day for in a certain time period and within a certain distance, but that doesn't mean that Salkeld was actually present when Kinmont Willie was taken captive. Although he does not seem to have objected to the capture, so Walter Scott writes writes to Salkeld first saying, "Hey, you've got a guy of mine. He was taken with you know in violation of the law illegally. I need him back." Salkeld turns him down. Well. Rather than just say, okay, that's it, I tried the right thing, Walter Scott tries again, except this time he writes to Lord Scrope, who is the actual English West March warden. Scrope, if I understood correctly, did he, he, silence was his answer, which Walter Scott takes as a no. I'm not giving him back to you. I'm sticking with Salkeld on this one. Okay, now at this moment, we might feel that Walter Scott would have been justified in just now now it, we, we, we are going to go guns ablazing into this situation. He still doesn't do it. He writes to the English ambassador to Scotland, a man by the last name of Bowes, B-O-W-E-S. Now, Bowes sees a situation as possible big trouble because at this time Scotland and England are friendly with each other it's very peaceful relations between these two realms and he does not need this turning into an international incident he writes to Scrope and says you need to let this guy go Scrope blows him off okay Walter Scott has tried three levels of doing this the right way and handling this in a diplomatic fashion. So, the Scots kind of have a, a stereotype, if, if those hold any water to anybody, of being hot-headed and rash, always ready to jump into a fight. No, Walter Scott acts a part of a mature, responsible leader and tries everything that he can to handle this the right way. But, I'm imagining that by this time he has lost all confidence in settling this diplomatically the time has come to take action and take matter into his own hands so what he does is first he it's no remember he is a an experienced border reaver and and campaigner this guy shows an ability to put together an operation that any military leader today would be very, very respectful of. First of all, he's got to get intelligence. So the thing, remember, that's why I gave you cultural background at the beginning, because you got to know that this this Anglo-Scottish border, that's not the end-all be-all to everybody's loyalty, right? So he, he has not only friends, but close relatives of his on the English side of the border. Now we get into a couple of the English side names here. The first one's the Carltons. The Carltons were an English border reaver surname or kindred. And there's there's two brothers, Thomas and Lancelot Carlton, that are have positions of responsibility within the English West March. Scrope has them, especially Thomas who has been, I can't remember what position it was, but under Lord Scrope, he had held this high position. I think it was sheriff. Anyway, Thomas Carlton was in deep in everything you could be in deep in in the Anglo-Scottish border. Scrope didn't 
trust him and he released him or fired him from that from that position. So we wonder why Thomas Carlton would be so ready to collude with this this Scottish lord here. And his brother, his brother seems like he's in it for the fight anyway. So you got the Carlton brothers. Also you got the Grams. Well, let me say that the, before I move on to the Grams, the Carltons, they have connections inside the castle, Carlisle Castle. So what, what we have going on here is intelligence gathering. We start getting, Walter Scott starts getting connections of his to start what we, in, in slang terms, called case in the joint. They'd be checking out where all the doors are, or the, what time the guards change, the way the doors open in, in or out. Um, how many people are manning different parts and how this is all relevant, what's the best avenue of approach. All this stuff is being fed back to, to Walter Scott as he plans on springing his buddy, Kinmont Willie, out. Once again, I'm not sure that they're buddies, but they're fixing to be. Because if somebody did this for me, they would be my lifelong friend forevermore. All right, so he, we, he did, does a collecting of intelligence. Another connection that Walter Scott has is with the Grams of Esk. Now, the Grams of Esk live right on the debatable land. There's a little stretch of land here that just not neither realm, Scotland nor England, has been able to come to a conclusion which side of the border this chunk of ground on, and the Grams live right in the middle of it. Once again, it's called the debatable, the debatable land. The Grams of Esk have an interesting background. They are a branch of the Grams that we find more up in central Scotland, who at one time held the earldom of Strathairn. In fact, it was a younger son or branch of this earldom, this Graham earldom of Strathairn, that split away and obtained these lands down in this, what would later became debatable land. So rather than the usual flow that we see in Scottish history in the clans of Scotland, usually the flow is they come up, let's say the Normans, the Normans get territory in England from the Norman invasion, but then David the First or Malcolm Canmore, whatever Scottish monarch, invites them north, gets them gets them some land in these prime lowland areas, and then we see see some of those clans acquire land further north and push up and get established in the Highlands. Examples of that would be I can give you three right off the top of my head. We have the Frasers. So we got the name of our author that we're coming from here. The Frasers were first established in the Lowlands, and then then were obtained land up there west of Inverness, and, be, and the, so the Frasers of Lovett become a Highland branch, and become a, a major clan in their own right, rather than just being a branch of the Lowland Frasers. But they, that's the the way that went. Also, the Gordons. The Gordons were originally established in the border country in southern Scotland. And then they become they get the the Strathbogie, which was later renamed Huntley, and you have the Gordon Earls of Huntley established up farther north later on as they push up. And the third example of this would be the Chisholms, who I think it looked like from what I had read on them a while ago. I'm just going out off the top of my head here, but that they, yeah, maybe Norman, but also maybe like an Anglo-Norman. It seems like I remember there is an Anglo-Saxon element to that bloodline. Anyway. And they get established up there near the where the Frasers were, so, so in, in in contrast to that movement from south to north, the Grams he have established in Strathairn, which is right that territory is right on the border of the southeast Highlands, and then it includes lowland territory too, as the River Arran 
comes uh, comes from Lochairn out of the highlands and down and down through the lowlands. So the branch of that clan, they come and establish themselves down here and become every bit the border reaver that any other clan ever was. Now, why are the Grams important to have in on this deal? Because if if Walter Scott's going to lead a rescue party, it's got to go right through Graham territory. So having them on your side is very helpful. And so that's how it goes. So we have so we have this little meeting, the Carltons, the Grams, the and Walter Scott and his party, which he in his party he includes um there it seems like I saw some Elliots that were part of his crew as well as interested Armstrongs to include four of Kinmont Willie's sons were in on this. Kinmont Willie would have been in his 40s at this time. Walter Scott, he would actually have been close, maybe his early 30s at this time. So he gets Kinmont Willie's sons in on this too. And I'm sure that they weren't the only Armstrongs involved in this. So they had this little meeting. They plan it all out. Now, this, this operation is really cool. So I'm just thinking of from a military officer standpoint. Walter Scott starts off and it's the weather was very much in his favor. This would be paragraph one of the operations order, right? Got in the situation we describe what the weather's going to do and how that affects the operation. It was just absolutely poopy weather. That's a technical term, by the way. So it's raining. It's nasty. It's but this favors the attackers because they can get pretty close to the Carlisle Castle without being detected. And if you're a defender, if you're one of the guys in the walls out in this kind of weather, first of all, they hit they this the party arrives two hours before day before dawn. So it's in the it's in the just this is the worst. I've anybody who's been in the military and had to pull different um, uh, there's different words for it. Fire, fire guards the easy version when you're back in garrison but if your security shift is a last shift and it's right before dawn i don't know and it's, and it's this kind of weather i don't know this this is not fun the the people who are keeping guard of carlisle castle are not going to be at their most vigilant in this kind of setting and and even if they were they just physically cannot see as far out all right how many people does Walter Scott start out with? Well, the, the actual band of people that he has around him is probably at about 80. Now, Fraser says that, look, there's different... Scrope wants to make it sound like just a small army assaulted Carlisle Castle because his personal honor as keeper of the castle is on the line here, but there, there probably wasn't that many. Think about it. He wants to move unnoticed through the country as much as possible. So he's not going to have this huge group. Now, he does have a force of Armstrongs pushed out in front, acting as scouts and, and advanced. Um, they're, we'd call it a screen. So they're riding out front. He's got the main party, and then he's also got a group performing a rear guard action just in case anybody comes up behind him. So this is interesting. I'm just seeing all the things you want to take into account here. Also, in case that he gets Kinmont Willie and he has to book it because a big force is behind him, he sets two ambushes to to bushwhack anybody who's trying to pursue him post rescue. So one of those, and there's so there's two different locations where he set this up. One of them were the Irvins. Now you might be thinking, well, the Irvins of Drum, that's northeast Scotland. I know there was two branches of the the Irvins, and this is the border bunch of them. So they got one of the ambush is set up the Johnstons have the other one which is cool and one reason I think Johnstons are cool because I found in my family tree you had to go back quite a ways but I found some Johnstons back in there so they've got the other ambush set up so this 
so he's got everything figured out. Seems like anyway, they get the they bring the main party has the you know the uh, what we'd call the assault force. They have ladders and scaling hooks and ropes attached and everything like that. Now, this is where his intelligence fell short, and and I don't know why. And there might be more to it than this, but they get there and their ladders are too short for the walls. And and they're I don't, I don't know what the deal is with the scaling ropes and the hooks and stuff like that. Anyway, it doesn't work. They can't scale it, or maybe they just made a decision. Maybe, hey, look, there's guys up there, and this is you know growing up. You're kind of vulnerable up at the top of a ladder, trying to scale. If there's a guy on the other side of the ladder who doesn't want you up there, and I know we've watched the History Channel movie The Vikings, and we've watched these guys assault walls, but that was a movie or a TV show, so. I'm just thinking you are not in a very good position to be swinging a sword at somebody who's just standing on solid ground on the other side while you're on the top of a ladder. I just don't I just don't see that as if you can hop over really quick and get established now it's whoever's a better sword fighter or axe swinger or whatever you, weapon you got. But they just anyway one way or another they couldn't they did not scale the walls. They found a door. Now, this might be the big deal about how they get in. Now, once again, I'm not talking about the actual castle. There's a wall that goes around a bigger area than the castle, and that's what we're trying to penetrate right now. They get there is, and there is, there are doors on these. You have the main gate entrance, but then you got also other places where people can get out and get water or whatever. Now, like I said, connections. It's likely that there were some Carlton or Graham connections inside the castle, and that they just got let in. In fact, they even knew now inside the castle walls, not the castle itself, but the wall that goes around everything, there's living quarters, right? It looks like Kinmont Willie was on parole, so that he wasn't actually being kept in some dank, dark dungeon in chains. He would have, and he may have had restraints on him, but he was being kept in a house that was inside the wall, but out of the castle. There were guards there, and they seemed to be the only people who got hurt in this whole operation. The door opens probably an inside guy. The assault force goes through. They had to rough up some of the guards of Kinmont Willie. I don't think they killed anybody. It didn't look like it, but they were injured. Grabs Kinmont Willie and runs out. He's got a waiting horse for him. They get on the horse and they ride away. So that's why I said the beginning, on the one hand, is very unremarkable. It, it just the operation seemed to go without a hitch, aside from the whole not making it over the ladder. But that might have been planned anyway, and they got a guy on the inside who knows exactly when they're going to be there, and he, they get the make the secret knocker. I don't know what they had, but he lets them in. They run in. They know already because of good intelligence, knew exactly what house he was in. The force that he had was more than enough for whatever security element was around Kinmont, and they got him, and they pull him out, and just kind of everything went on without a hitch. So it's kind of unremarkable. The remarkable thing, I think, is that one, you would even attack a castle as strong as Carlisle. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. Had a little uh, phone call to take there. But that you would even attack someplace as strong as Carlisle, on the one hand. You don't know that you're not going to get a huge, heavy force that just happens to be there. You don't know that somebody hasn't tipped the 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 Salkeld or Scrope off and they're going to have guys waiting for you. I mean, it seems like he was prepared for it because it's... Anyway, I don't know. It's just the whole thing is why Walter Scott hereafter is known as Bold Buckluch because he just, you know what? I don't care if they're in this big, huge, strong castle. I'm going to figure out a way to do this 
I've tried the right way. We're going to get my guy out. And they do. It's just cool. And that's the story. They get him out. Kinmont Willie. Both, so Kinmont Willie and Walter Scott go on to, well, they, they both go on to, to further raids and stuff. But Walter Scott actually turns around when King James is now in control of everything. And he's trying to bring some ever-loving law and order to the realm. Walter Scott, he joins and goes right on board with this, and he tries everything within his power to assist in bringing this area to peace, despite how active he had been as a border reaver. So that's kind of interesting, I thought, too. So there you go. There's a little bit about the kindreds that are involved in this whole thing. Um, I don't know, maybe a little touch on the on the Armstrong kindred, because I, I don't think I've ever done anything really in-depth on them. They seem to... Well, they claim their legends, their their own clan legends claim they they descend from an Anglo-Danish, the last Anglo-Danish Earl of Northumbria who was Seward. Let me check the name real quick. Seward Bjorn, B-E-O-R-N, who was supposed to have been the last Anglo-Danish Earl of Northumbria. I have not really checked that out, nor do I know for sure. In fact, I remain doubtful that you... Say, hey, look, I'm not trying to say that the legends of the different clans about where they come from have no merit whatsoever. Some of their, like, hey, we've got, the, the, our, our ancestor was an Anglo-Danish important person, warlord, earl maybe, I don't know. I'm not saying that those have no merit. There's no documentary evidence to connect the Seward with the Armstrong clan. For all we can tell, they develop in place where their territory was in this in south this the the western borders there are a lot of armstrongs who are on the english side as well who, who i don't mind their loyalty was that's not what i mean to the english i mean that that they just there's a lot of armstrongs living on both sides of the borders but this group this kindred that was that were border reavers they were they were on the scottish side anyway there you have a little background on the Armstrongs, the Grahams. I didn't go deep into the Carltons because I haven't looked that up a lot, but that'd be interesting to look up more history on the English clans. And for that matter, wouldn't it be cool to learn a lot about the Irish clans? What if I could just run three different podcasts, but it's all I can do to get time to break away from the busyness of everything and make sure I've got this one hashed out for you guys. Hope you like the story. I think this is a cool story. I like the planning that was involved, the execution, the fact that Walter Scott would just like, you know what? You got my guy. I'm going in. I just think that's cool. I don't know. It's that, that military man of inside of me that just just can can admire that. I hope that if I had a friend that was in a pinch like Kinmont Willie Armstrong, I hope that I would be the guy that could pull something like that off. Conversely, if I was Kinmont Willie Armstrong, I would hope that I had a friend like that on the outside. Anyway, hope you like it. Uh, here's here's something I wanted to add here. I'm going to start doing this with my episodes, if I can remember. If you have ever ran out of deodorant and had to use your spouse's deodorant, click the subscribe button. If you have ever used it and thought that it worked really well, then make sure you share this, not only subscribe, but share this episode with a friend of yours. Or if you disliked it, 
Anyway, I'm not saying that I've ever done that before. And I can tell you I'm not currently using my wife's deodorant. I'm just saying, you know what? You got to do what you got to do. Just ask Walter Scott or Ken Willie. Anyway, I hope you like this. Whatever platform you're listening to this on, please do, in all seriousness, subscribe to it. Allow notifications if your platform allows you to. Most of you are probably listening to this on Apple Podcasts. So make sure you leave me a review. I've had a few recently, um, so I appreciate those of you. I'm not actually looking at my feed right now, but I'll probably mention you on the next episode. And I'll, I'll go into comments and things that people have left me, but I really appreciate it. So if you're one of those, thank you so much. Share this with somebody that you think would enjoy it. And, and not just for Apple Podcasts, leave me a, a review, like a, an actual star rating and, and an actual written, like, hey, hey, here's what I like about this. Here's maybe something to think about doing this. But do it on whatever version of that the other platforms have, Spotify, wherever else you're doing this on. Please do it on those as well. And I really value the feedback. Or go to facebook.com forward slash clans of Scotland to the Scottish Clans Facebook page and send me a message on there. A lot of you have been doing that. That's been working really well for me. So I appreciate it. And I hope you join with me next time. Until then, may the good Lord be with you.